In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word that the Lord had spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with all articles of silver and gold and with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts in addition to the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, then had them brought by Midrath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezebar, the priest of Judah, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Get excited. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shezebazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Thanks, Rosie. Good everyone. My name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Pracker. Really glad to be with you this morning. Uh, it's a miserable day outside. It's kind of nice to be in here warm, isn't it? Um, I'm going to put a picture on the screen here, and this picture probably doesn't mean much to you. Uh, but to me, this this brings back a lot of good memories. Um, when I first moved out of home, I, I lived in Newcastle in New South Wales, uh, which was about five hours down the road from where I'd grown up. And of course, you know, whenever you move to a new place, it takes a bit of time to settle in. And so as often as I could, I, I'd jump back in the car and head back home. And this is the turn off I would take. After spending five hours driving on what I think is probably the most boring road in Australia, the Pacific Highway, I would get to this exit and I would know there is about you know, two or three minutes and I would be home again. That's a good feeling, isn't it? There's something really nice about coming back home, right? You know the feeling I'm talking about? Even I think with our family, we, last time we took a holiday, a really fun holiday, we had a blast, um, but got home and I remember turning to my wife Pip and saying, that's kind of nice to be home, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because you know that feeling I'm talking about. Even though you might have a lot of fun away, there's something nice about coming back home. Really, that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. We're about to spend a bunch of weeks in these two books from the Old Testament. And I've called this series The Return because that's what's happening. In Ezra and Nehemiah... God's people are returning home. They're coming back home for the first time in a long time. 
Before we get there, though, I, I want us to get our bearings a little bit here to um, recap where we're at in the Old Testament. Rosie did a bit of that for us already. But to help us here, I'm gonna, we're going to make a timeline. It's going to be on the screen, but also we're going to make a, a human timeline across here. So I'm going to need some volunteers at different points. Don't be afraid. Just put your hand up. Come on out. You won't, you won't get embarrassed, I, I swear. Okay, so Old Testament timeline. Here we go. The Old Testament starts with God making the world, and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. So can I have an Adam or an Eve to come on up and help us with the timeline here? Who wants to do it? Jacinta. So here we go. There's Eve over here. And things are going great. You stand over there, Jacinta. Things are going great for, for, for Adam and Eve until they decide they want to be the boss of their own life and they eat the fruit from the tree they shouldn't. There you go. Not, a, not an apple, but we've got an orange. And so there. Things don't, and from there, things go badly until the time of Noah. Can I get a Noah up here? Come on up, a Noah. Here we go. Thank you, Zachy. Um, at the time of Noah, we know that the big flood comes. And so Noah builds his boat. We've got a boat there. You can have the boat, Noah. You can stand over there. And kind of with, 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 the, um, with Noah, God, it's like God does, undoes creation and, and kind of like hits a reset button. Um, but when things turn out after that, we see that actually the, the human problem, the same problems are still there. Then God does something new. God talks to Abraham and God promises. God, God, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says to Abraham, actually, let, let me get an Abraham or a Sarah up here. Who wants to come on up again? You want to come on up, Isaac? Come on up, buddy. You can come on up. Thanks, mate. He says, yeah, here he comes. This is Abraham down here. A bit shorter than you might have expected. Um, uh, God gave three promises to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to give you a land to live in for your descendants. And your family, through your family, the whole world will be blessed. And so Abraham and Sarah, they're kind of old. Hence, we got Isaac here, obviously. Um, kind of old. Um, but God still gives him a baby. So there, you can hold on to the baby, Isaac. And you come over here next to Zachy. There's Abraham. Um, great. Uh, a couple of generations later, Abraham's family um, moves down to Egypt to escape a famine. They spend 400 years, and in that time, they become a vast nation, like God promised to Abraham. But they also become enslaved. So God sends the Moses. Who, can we have a Moses come on up here? God sends the Moses. Who wants to be Moses? Thank you, Christine. Um, he'll be right there, Jacinta. There's Moses, and Moses has got a staff to lead the people out of Egypt uh, to rescue them. So they come out and they get, they get into a new land. And Moses leads them out with his great staff. Thank you, Moses. And when they're in this land, God gives them uh, a king. We kind of have a false start with a guy called Saul who doesn't end up being that good. But then we get King David. Can I have a King David? Come on up, Grammy. Um, king David, we're going to put the crown on you, brother. It's a lovely, lovely... Well, it looks more like a princess crown, doesn't it? Thank you. <laughs> King David here. Um, uh, at this point, things seem to be going. Remember, remember the promises God made to Abraham over here? Um, that, that suddenly now Abraham's family has grown. There's heaps of them. They have their own land. And so we think, well, maybe, maybe they're going to start becoming a blessing to those around them. And we kind of see that in a little bit. But actually, what we mostly see is that they repeat the mistakes of the past, the same mistakes at the time of Noah, at the time of Adam and Eve. They make the same mistakes as the past. They want to do life without God, and this leads to trouble. I should be giving you all on the screen. Sorry, where are we up to here? 
Noah, Moses, trouble. Here we go. The kingdom is split in two. Can I have someone to come down and be the kingdom splitting in two? Come on up, Eva, if you want to. So here you go, Eva. The kingdom's going to split in two. I've got a bit of paper for you, Eva. Come on up here. And I'm going to get you to tear this in half and hold the two bits of paper in half. The kingdom is split into two. Lovely. Thank you, Eva. On the one, on the one hand, up in the north, you've got um, Israel and Judah. Ten, sorry, Israel is what the north, ten northern tribes are known. Judah is the southern two tribes. Then after 200 years, so this is in 722 BC. Keep that date in mind. No, you don't need to keep that date in mind. No one's going to test you. The northern tribes, Israel, are invaded. The king of Assyria, whose name is Shalmaneser, um, he comes and he takes them over. And the northern tribes are taken off into exile. So can I be someone to come up and be in exile? There you go. We've got some handcuffs to put you in. Um, there you go. He's taken off into exile. And about 100 years after that, the same things happened to the southern tribes in Judah. King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon sends his army down and they take out Judah and they take out its capital city, Jerusalem. So can I have someone from King Nebuchadnezzar's army come on down? Who wants to do this? Luke, thanks, mate. You've got a hammer and matches. They, they destroy the temple, the city, the walls around the city. You've got matches because they burn it all down. The place is left in a, in a disgrace. Um, and the Jews, like the people from from uh, Israel, they're taken off into exile as well. They spend 70 years in exile and then something big happens. And that's, that's where we pick into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, before you guys all sit down, Ada's gonna, we're going to have a look up there at Ada, who's going to take a photo of our timeline for us. Thanks, Ada. Um, this is our human timeline. From, we've gone from Adam and Eve right down to the Jews being taken into exile and getting their city destroyed. Thanks, everyone. Why don't you come and... Why don't we thank these guys? Come and pop your things in here. Have a seat. Here we go. Thank you. Good job. Thanks, thanks, Eva. Thanks, Christine. Ta. That's the, that's the setting, that's the Bible background we need for Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah covers a period of about 100 years. These couple of books over a period of about 100 years, from 539 to about 432. Here's the full timeline. Um, where we're at is really that bit that's circled in blue there. In this time period we look at, there's going to be four major foreign kings we hear. We've heard of Cyrus this morning. We'll hear in the coming weeks of Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. Aren't they great names? Who, who, you know, if you've got a kid coming along soon, just Artaxerxes, hey? <laughs> also, in this time, we see three great returns from exile. Three groups at different times return from Babylon back home to Jerusalem. In 539, there's a group led by Zerubbabel. That's what we heard about today. In 458, another group led by Ezra. And then later on, another group led by Nehemiah. That's, that's a bit of the background to the book. But before we get into the book here, I want you to imagine some things for a moment. Right? Imagine you are one of these Jews in exile. Your hometown has been destroyed and leveled. It lies in ruins. Your old life is really a distant memory. And in all honesty, you've got no hope of getting back. You, you don't know what's about to happen. You don't know that soon this big return is going to to take place. All you know is that the Babylonians have come in. They've taken you to their land 
and they don't let you go back. That's actually part of how they break your spirit. Eventually, over time, you just forget about home. You put your roots down and you essentially become a Babylonian. So imagine you're there in exile as one of these Jews and one day you decide to pick up this old book that you find. And it's, it's, it's a book of prophecy. Uh, it's the old prophet Jeremiah. And, and you, read, you read this part of what he said. He says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to you. So fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. Imagine you're one of those Jews in exile and you read this. You read the exile is only going to last 70 years. And so you start to count back in your head. God says 70 years and it's been, it's been 69 and a half years. At that point, what are you thinking? Maybe you're thinking excitement, but I reckon most of the people are thinking, no. It's just not going to happen. It's impossible. How could we get back to our land? Don't you see our situation? There's no way that could happen. That's the mood. That's the background in Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we open up Ezra and Nehemiah, and here's the first thing we see. God makes it happen. God makes a way for his people to return. God works powerfully to bring about the word that he had spoken. You see this in the very first verse. So in verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Notice there, Cyrus is not a Babylonian king, which is a big news. He's a Persian king. In 539, we know the Babylonians surrendered to the Persians. So Cyrus became the king over all of Babylon, including the Jews who had been taken off to Babylon. And as a king, he had a different policy. He didn't keep, he, so he didn't try and, try and break the spirit of the exiles. He didn't force them to worship his gods. Instead, he got everyone to worship their own gods and to pray to their own gods and to pray to their own gods for his welfare. And rather than keep these exiled people away from their homes, he sent them back to their land. As a Jew in exile, this is a massive change. It is huge news. And it makes you ask, why? Why has this happened? What's forced this change, the change of king, a change of policy? Is it just chance or luck? Let's read further in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. You see there, the Lord moved his heart. God made this happen. It is a spectacular turnaround. Do you remember when um, Stephen Bradbury won the gold medal for Australia? He's a speed skater at the Winter Olympics, and he is coming dead last. Like, not even just by a little bit, by a long way, he's coming last. But then everyone in front of him just kind of bustles each other, and, and they all fall over. And Stephen Bradbury just, he kind of doesn't even need to work hard. He just strolls over the line at the end, and he, he wins gold medal. It's, it's an incredible turnaround. That's kind of like what's happening here at the start of Ezra. There was no chance for the Jews to go back home. Or then, and then suddenly all that stood in front of them, it just fell over. Or 
more rightly, God moved it out of the way for them. And now they're about to go home. It's a spectacular turnaround. It's worth digging in and seeing a little bit more of the details here. Uh, in verse 2 and 4, as Rosie read for us, you might have noticed, um, we have a decree that Cyrus made. It's written down for us in our Bibles. And I want to read it. There, there, there are three parts to this decree. As, as I read it out, see if you can pick up the three things that Cyrus wants to happen. And here it is from verse 2. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. and May their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Did you pick up the, the three things there? Three things Cyrus says will happen? Firstly, he says, I, I want, in verse 2, I want a temple to be built. Verse 3, any and every Jew is allowed to go back and rebuild it. In verse 4, other people, people who aren't Jews, have to give the Jews things so they can go back and rebuild the temple. You know, this fits in really well with what we know about Cyrus, generally. Uh, in the British Museum, there's what they call the Cyrus Cylinder. There it is. It's just a... Um, a a big clay cylinder with ancient writing on it. And this thing, it records how Cyrus defeated Babylon and then how he let different people groups go back to their homeland. It's exactly what he's doing here in Ezra chapter 1 for the Jews. I'm sure some of the Jews at this point were thinking, this is too good to be true, right? And when an offer comes along that's this good, you think to yourself, It just can't happen so easily, right? And the rest of chapters 1 and 2 really flesh out for us what did happen. So Cyrus said, these these three things are what I want to happen. Rebuild the temple. Any Jew can go back and do it. Other people are going to give them stuff to help. Three things. So what do we see happen? Well, in verse 5, the Jews go back to rebuild the temple. Look at verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Heaps of Jews end up going back. Notice again, it's God that that changes their hearts, that moves their hearts. It's God that makes this happen. And in chapter 2, that's what chapter 2 is really all about. Um, when Rowdy Randy started reading through chapter 2, it might have just seemed like a, a long list of boring names and numbers and he kind of, you read it and you just want to press skip and get to the action again in chapter 3, right? But, but this long list, it shows us how many people came back. There were lots and lots of just regular Jewish people. But also, you know, they were going back to rebuild the temple, right? And so there were lots of people who came along who did the work in the temple, like priests and Levites and temple musicians and gatekeepers and temple servants. In fact, right at the end of it, we read in chapter 2, verse 64, the whole company, the the amount of people who came back was 42,360. This is not a small group of rabble-rousers. This is a lot. This is, that's like five times the population of Paraka here. This is a lot of people. So Cyrus said Jews could go back, and heaps of them did. 
tick. Cyrus also said, other people have to give the Jews stuff to help them. And guess what? That happened too. Chapter 1, verse 6. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Again, it actually happens. Another tick. There's one more thing left that Cyrus said, isn't there? He wants the temple to be rebuilt. Does that happen? Well, we'll get to that in, 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 in chapters 3 to 6 next week. But before we do, notice what Cyrus does in verse 7. So the Jews are there in Babylon. They haven't gone back to the land yet. And look at what Cyrus does, verse 7. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Midradath, the treasurer who counted them, uh, sorry, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, we don't see the temple being rebuilt yet, but this is a start. The temple treasures had been taken away by the Babylonians when they came in and conquered. But now God has put Cyrus in charge and he takes these temple treasures and he puts them into the hands of the Jews. So when they go back, they can restore the temple. It's the first step in the temple being rebuilt. At the beginning of Ezra, the Jews would be thinking, here we are in Babylon. And that's where we're going to be. Going home would be nice, but there's no chance of that happening. But it does happen. So that by the end of Ezra chapter 2, we see many Jews settled back in their homeland. They've returned home and they are committed to staying, committed to rebuilding the temple. It seemed impossible, like a far-off dream, but God has made it happen. He spoke his word many years before through the prophet Jeremiah, and then he made it happen. I have a thing set up on my phone where uh, so I've, I've got the Bible app, and each day it sends me at midday, it sends me the verse of the day. And so I'll stop what I'm doing and have a look at it. And so on Thursday, I'm working through all this stuff from Ezra. And, and the verse of the day comes through on my phone. And this is what it was from Luke chapter 1. It said, For no word from God will ever fail. This really captures what Ezra 1 and 2 are all about. No word from God will ever fail. Whatever God says he will do, God will do it. And essentially, that's what we need to hear today, isn't it? It's what God is telling us today. Whenever we read a word of God to us, friends, we can be sure. I say we can be confident God is going to make it happen. Even if it seems impossible to us, even if we can't work out how God is going to bring this about, be sure he will do it. If God makes a promise to forgive your sin, 
Friends, be sure of this. He will do it. Friends, if God makes a promise to bring an end to evil, be sure of this. He will do it. Friends, if God makes a promise to you to bring you home to be with him, he will do it. Whatever God says he will do, he will do it. But there is a promise that God makes to us. And I reckon I can find it often hard to believe that he'll do it. I think to myself, I just can't see how this is going to happen. And I reckon I'm not alone in thinking this either. So I want to focus on this promise for a moment. What am I talking about? Well, in the Bible, God promises us that mission will work. God says that he is going to use us to bring more and more people to live for Jesus. Let me show you. So in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful. There are people who need to hear about Jesus and who will turn to Jesus. Then in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says that he will grow his church. He will do it. And not even Satan and all the powers of hell can stop him from doing it. And in Matthew 28, Jesus calls us to be part of that, to go and make disciples, to speak to others about Jesus. Do you see, friends, what God is saying to us here? What Jesus says to us. We live in the time when mission works, when God uses us in his mission in the world. But I reckon all too often I can hear this and I think to myself, oh, there's just, there's no way that really could happen though, right? At least not for me, at least not with my friends. I can come up with all sorts of reasons why not, you know, I, I'm just no good at this kind of stuff. I've tried it before and I failed. Or none of no, no one that I know really wants to hear about this. Is it just me who has these worries? Friends, we need to remember what God is telling us today. God says he will make it happen. He says he'll make it happen, so he will. Mission will work. So when I catch up with my friend down the road or hang out with my neighbours or whatever it is, I can have confidence, actually, confidence to talk about Jesus. Yes, thoughtfully and respectfully. I can have confidence to invite someone along to church or invite someone along to the Life Series. Or I can have confidence because it's not just me that's wanting to make this happen. But God does this. He will make it happen. It doesn't always happen according to the way I think it will or when I think it will or with whom I think it will happen. But God says he will make it happen. Mission will work because God has said he will make it happen. And this has been a timely reminder for me and I hope for all of us too. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have our combined Sunday. We're going to um, not be here in a couple of weeks. We're going to be up at the Padere Chapel, in, at Padere College in, in Golden Grove. We're going to have church together there with our sister churches at Golden Grove, Modbury and Campbelltown. And look, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'm sure we'll all walk away really encouraged by what God is doing uh, in the different churches. But it's also when we launch into a season of mission together. On that day, we're going to talk about 
how we can all be part of us. Just simple things, the kind of things that all of us can do and how we can be on mission together in the next part of this year. And I'm going to wait until we get to that day for all the details. But in light of what we've heard today, all I want to say is this. You know, God says mission can happen. Mission will happen. So when we launch into this season of mission, I want to say to us all, friends, let's give it a crack, hey? Let's make the most of it. Let's, let's throw ourselves in and be part of what's going on. Because God has told us that mission will work. He will make it happen. Even through us. So let's just, for a little bit, try and put our, our concerns, our, our, our pessimism to the side. Let's have confidence in God doing what he says he will do. Let's give it a crack. Let's pray and let's give it a crack and see what God does with us. Why don't I pray for us now, hey? Let me pray. Our God and gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for what we're able to see in Ezra here today, how you're the God who speaks to us your word, who speaks to us your promises, and then you bring them about. God, you are wonderful. Nothing stands in the way of you bringing about what you say you'll do. So help us have confidence in all of your promises. Especially today, we wanted to ask, give us confidence in your promise that mission will work because you'll make it work. Prepare us for what's ahead so when we launch into this season of mission, we'll be ready, we'll be active, and that you'll use us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.